on this episode of Dig Me Out. This is more emo than most emo bands. You know, I don't think it's any secret that they're a band that has always reflected musically what's going on at the time. Anybody who hears just that song pretty much goes, what the hell? Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Simonici, and joining me again, Jay Ziak. Jay, we are heading into uncharted territory tonight. Uh oh. I'm scared. I know, you should be. We are going to review something that. When we started this podcast, I never thought we would tackle because it seemed so big in terms of uh, the band. This is like this is like tackling, um, you know, uh, uh, REM or something like that. As far as <laughs> as far as the importance of this band, yeah, or the Cure. I'm speaking, of course, of the cult. If, you, if you're listening to this, you've already read the description of this episode, so you know that it's the cult self-titled album from uh, 1994. So, but I think this this is an interesting choice. This was made by you. You suggested this. Yep. And your reasoning was. Um, the the big difference for me of what qualifies this uh, compared to the other bands that you mentioned are that this is a band that and, and I hope we get a chance to do more of these this is a unique band that existed before the 90s and after and during the 90s you know really were influenced and their path was dramatically altered by what what was going on in music at that time, um, I think you know you when you talk about the Cure and REM, I think they made you know good material during that time. But I think it's still them, and even though it may be different, um, particularly with REM and, and involved, I don't think I think they were more part of what was going on and it was more natural for them. I think for the cult, they were a band that was sort of sideswiped in a weird way by what happened, but still had some relevance to them. So, you know, this album is their attempt to reconcile that and, and try to figure out a way where they can exist in, in both, you know, the 80s arena rock world and uh, the new alternative rock uh, scene, so I, I think this album is is, is um, not, not only that, but you know it's not one of their commercially, it's not one of their most successful albums. So um, it certainly uh, fits the dig me out idea. So don't you think that uh, I was I was thinking about this today? Um, don't you think that the Colts are really kind of an oddball band in terms of the fact that they were played on both Headbangers Ball and 120 Minutes? Oh, absolutely. We're not yeah, really one hundred percent in the hair glam metal camp that was going on in the nineties, or I mean in the eighties. That they because they had elements of I don't want to say goth rock, but that's what they kind of started out as. Um, that there was 
a little bit more depth to them than just your typical uh, 80s you know, metal band. Well, g going back to my, my <clears throat> original point about them is that, you know, I don't think it's any it's any secret to do a band that has always reflected um, musically what's going on at the time um, and particularly what they're they're currently listening to so I think in the 80s you know they were kids that were really influenced by goth and new wave and that's what their music you know reflected um, I think as the 80s progressed they got into more hard rock stuff and they did a, an album with Rick Rubin and you know, they sort of showed off their hard rock ACDC influences. And then they evolved into, you know, as the 90s, the late 80s and early 90s approached with uh, Sonic Temple and Ceremony, they did more of a, an arena rock, you know, glam rock kind of thing. And then, you know, this album comes out in 94 and the world has changed in terms of music. And I think what's cool about them is, you know, they once again are, they're paying attention to that and they're into what those bands are doing. You know, and they're, um, you know, do, sort of doing their take on that for this album. And it continues on through their history, which, you know, Beyond Good and Evil, you know, it, it's got a lot of Drop D stuff. It came out in 2003, I think, around that time. Uh, actually, well, we'll get into it, but it was but a little I mean, it earlier than like, that. It sounds like bands of that, it sounds like the cult, you know, sort of absorbing what bands at that time were doing. and doing their take on it they've always done that so i think that's what they are a unique band in that you know I, there's not very many bands that have been able to do that successfully now not all those albums that obviously are huge hits but i think that they all have merit and they're all interesting to listen to as a time capsule for not only you know because it's always undeniably the cult when you hear it like you can't you don't mistake them for anybody else but they're able to sort of reflect back other styles in a way that I, I think you're right makes them very very unique so well we've we've covered a, sort of a general history but i'm going to get into i guess some of the specifics uh for a minute um the cult were originally formed in 1981 by singer ian asbury asbury as the southern death cult in bradford yorkshire england they released one single and then broke up after 16 months uh, in April of 83, Asbury teamed up with guitarist Billy Duffy, who had previously been in a band called The Nosebleeds, with one Mr. Morrissey, future of the Smith. And they formed the band Death Cult. Death Cult released an EP in July of 83. And then in January 84, they changed their name officially to The Cult, because they wanted to avoid uh, connotations of being a goth band, which, you know, at the time you had The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and Bauhaus and those types of bands. They were trying to get away from that. And they released their first album, Dreamtime, on Beggar's Banquet in September of 84. Uh, May 1985, they released a single for uh, the upcoming album, Love, and that was She Sells Sanc Sanctuary, which is probably one or two of the most well-known uh, cult songs, depending on if you put Firewoman first or second. That came, uh, uh, October of 85 is when Love came out. They toured Love 
The band returned to the studio in the summer of 86 to follow, follow it up with the album, which was going to be titled Peace. But after recording 12 songs, they scrapped it and decided to find a new producer to remix the single Love Removal Machine and settled on Rick Rubin. But he refused to remix it and said the band should just re-record the song, listen to the album and said, forget it, you should just re-record the whole album. That's where Electric came from, and that was released in April of 1987. The band hired Bob Rock, who will be uh, appearing later, to produce their April 1989 release, Sonic Temple. In 1990, and this is where uh, some interesting stuff comes in I didn't know about the cult. 1990, Ian Asbury, Asbury organizes the Gathering of Tribes Festival in Los Angeles and San Francisco with the following lineup. Soundgarden, Ice-T, Indigo Girls, Queen Latifah, Iggy Pop, the Char- Charlatans, the Cramps, and Public Enemy. The two-day festival drew 40,000 and is cited as a major influence in the creation of Lollapalooza. Supposedly, Perry Farrell was in attendance at Gathering of, the Gathering of Tribes and got the idea for Lollapalooza based on this experience. In 1991, <laughs> Oliver Stone offers Ian Asbury the lead in his movie about the doors, but Asbury declines. The band starts to work on their next album, but there is tension between Ian Asbury and uh, Billy Duffy, and the majority of the album is recorded in separate sessions by each of the musicians. And in 91, September of 91, Ceremony is released to mixed reviews. After touring, the band returns to the studio in 1993 to record the self-titled Cult album, which we'll be reviewing with Bob Rock. It is released in October 94. The band breaks up while on tour in South America in the spring of 95. Ian Asprey almost immediately forms Holy Barbarians and releases the album Cream in 1996 then records a solo album that was not released until June of 2000, which was Spirit Light Speed. Um, The band reunites in 1999 to release the six-disc box set Rare Cult. That was finally released in November 2000, and it included the entire unreleased Peace album. In 2001, the band signs to Atlantic, and with Bob Rock once again behind the board, records Beyond Good and Evil, which is released in June of 2001. In 2002, the band goes on a hiatus after some touring. Asbury joins the Doors of the 21st Century with Ray Van Zarek and John Densmore. And up until February of 2007, the Colts are not together. They sign a deal with Roadrunner Records and release Born Into This, in October of 2007. In 2010, the band begins releasing multi-format singles uh, called Capsules, each with uh, songs and videos. Capsule 1 was released, and then Capsule 2. January 2011, the band announces that they will be releasing a new full-length album. In May of 2011, the band signed to Cooking Vinyl Records and are recording to release a new album in the fall of 2011. And that is 
the history of the cult. I did not get into all of the bass player and drummer changes that this band has been in, has been involved with, because that would have been numerous, as most bands... This would have been a four-hour podcast. Yeah, let's just say that at certain times, Matt Sorum from Guns N' Roses has been in the band, and that's about it. We'll get into who played on this record, but we're not going to get into everybody else. So, The Cult, self-titled, Bob Rock produced, the second of three Bob Rock produced albums. Jay, you brought this one, so I am gonna, yeah. I'm going to start this out. Now, this is a record I'm familiar with. I listened to this back in the day. Uh, this was an album that uh, I mentioned before that Keith had suggested some albums. That was my uh, roommate in college who's joined us on a few podcasts and was in our band for many years. When he gave me a Catherine Wheel album and a Posies album and some other stuff, Jawbox, he gave me this cult record. I obviously knew the cult from Firewoman and She Still Sanctuary and Love Removal Machine, but I didn't know them beyond those singles. So when I heard this record, the first thing that hits you is the opening track, which is, if you're a cult fan, it's a mind blower. Because like, <laughs> what is going on? And if you're not a cult fan and you're just listening to this, it's got to be a pretty weird experience. There is, I'll just say it, one of the oddest drum, uh, and it's not a loop, but the, the percussion part that he's playing is so odd. And combined with the um, descending bass and piano parts, we're just saying that right there, there's, there's a, a piano, there's not even an electric guitar, I don't even think, until the um, chorus, yep, which is crazy. And I should warn up front, because we're going to play the song, and I'm going to play the, the verses and the choruses. There are a lot of F-bombs in this song. But they're awesome. They're awesome, and it totally <laughs> makes the song. Oh, yeah. Um, they're done with such attitude. It's just phenomenal. So your anger didn't Shattered little self You haven't got A fucking thing to say here learned this time listening to this record and I, I paid attention to the lyrics a lot more than I had in the past there are references to drugs on almost half of the songs and I learned yep. that prior to this album Ian Asbury had, be, had become clean he had kicked drugs which he had apparently had a problem with um, in the years before this there are also songs um, which reference his childhood. This is probably the most personal cult record uh, in their history. Lyrically, it's it's probably the strongest album he's ever done. Oh, without a doubt. I think. 
without a doubt. And I think that that's because it's a very confessional, you know, record for him. Uh, he's mentioning his drug abuse. He's mention- mentioning track four, which is an epic, epic song. It's about child abuse. And in, and in reading some interviews and some stuff with him, he had been he had gone through that. I thought he was writing in the third person because it's pretty obvious. He opens the song with "Don't you hit that defenseless, defenseless child," and you think, "Oh, he's writing third-person storytelling time." He's talking about his his life, as, you know, when he was a teenager, and the abuse, the physical abuse that he suffered, and it really adds so much weight um, to the songs. And when he's belting it out, you're not listening to a guy who's just got a, one of the best voices in rock history. You listen to a guy who's going through some sort of catharsis, just screaming at, at what he's gone through and exercising mm-hmm. these demons. And it's really, really powerful stuff. I think if you yeah. listen to it and you're just like, this is just a, a, glam, a glam hard rock band that you know wanted to make an alternative record, you're going to miss the entire point of this album. This is almost, yeah. I mean, this is more emo than most emo bands. When you talk about <laughs> what emo is, this is an emotional purging record when it comes to the amount of, you know, bile and 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 anger that he's kicking up, um, that's not to say that there aren't fun, you know, up-tempo rockers. The, the the thing that I noticed the most is on certain tracks, uh, "Be Free" was one, and "Star." There was an element that I heard of late Jane's addiction of especially in the guitar playing mm-hmm. of taking a, uh, not a jammy. Um, Cause you know, on songs like three days, you know, Jane's Dick would jam out for 10 minutes or whatnot, but it sounds like stop and mountain song and, and stuff on the ritual album and the second album. Um, there's a, there's a weird connection to that band. And it sort of makes sense because these are both guys very much into the spiritual aspect of rock and roll. And obviously, Asprey's drawing back a lot to Jim Morrison and The Doors in terms of where his head is at um, musically. I mean, he was in the 21st century of The Doors, and he was offered the lead role as, you know, uh, as Jim Morrison in the, in the movie. So there's, you know, to me, a song like Joy sounds like yeah. a modern take on a on a door song with that organ beyond my pedestrian ties my innocence yeah no sweet lies I rode in that car as far as it would take me I love that organ. The organ's cool, it, and in the second verse, it's a really cool, like, simple organ part. Yeah, you know? it's the it's the Doors tone, but it's not the like 
overly indulgent, you know, flourishes on Oregon. It's just a simple, cool line. And, and the and the cool part about that song is not just that organ, but uh, Billy Duffy plays what is essentially jazz riffs during the second verse, which reminded me a lot of the stuff that Densmore would do. You know, Densmore mm-hmm. was not really a rock guitarist when he started out. He was a guy who was more classically trained. And, you, you know, in that second verse, he's playing jazz voicings with a lot of those chords that, that he's riffing on. Um, well, I, well, on that point, one of the things that makes this album unique for a cult album is that it's not necessarily guitar-driven. Um, there are guitars everywhere and all over it, but they're not the glue that holds the song together. They're finding other ways to keep the song propelled and and moving forward using bass, keyboards, a lot of times drums, sometimes vocals, piano. And then the guitar comes in, and yeah, he's able to play like a more like a funk influence or jazz influence kind of guitar part or parts over top of that. And he can kind of come in and then come out. And it makes it just makes the song so much more interesting because you're, you know, it's always evolving and changing as the song goes. You know, it's not like here's the guitar riff, I'm going to play it. You know, if you think about electric, you know, it's the, the simplest form of that. You know, it's, here's the guitar riff, I'm going to play it, then we're going to sing over it, then I'm going to change it, play the chorus, which is another guitar riff, and that's the song. You know, this is a lot more for them. It's a lot more uh, complex and layered. Which I don't think they've ever, they've never really done anything like this before, or before or since. Yeah. Maybe their earlier stuff was was somewhat similar to the way this stuff's structured, but uh, from a tone production standpoint, that stuff is so different that I don't even think of them as being the same kind of thing. And this is a good point to bring up the the guys who played on this particular record. Uh, One is Scott Humphrey. He's a Canadian producer and engineer. He actually produced Motley Crue's Generation Swine album. And he did all the keys, the keyboards, organs, all that stuff. And he did all the programming for any loops. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what he brings is what makes this album interesting. There's a lot of keyboard stuff. Here and there, It does. it's not necessarily standing out. It's not making a big deal out of it. But like in Joy, that organ is really cool. Um, one Sacred of my Life favorite, huh? Sacred Life has a great like. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Keyboard. There's a piano that ends that song, and that I remember the first time I heard this album. Uh, that song standing out. It's odd in terms of the overall album. It's probably the simplest song, and it's also. If you think about when this album came out, now this album came out in October of 94. I don't remember exactly the month that Kurt Cobain died, but in terms of writing that song, I got to imagine this song was written within weeks of Cobain dying because it references Cobain's death. It references Andrew Wood's death. I don't even think I knew who Andrew Wood was at the time when I heard this. But the fact mm-hmm. that he brings him up is really interesting. Brings up River Phoenix, all these guys who had 
you know, died way too young. funeral aspect to this song yeah it's really cool it's so different it's so interesting it's so unlike not just the rest of this album but just anything the cult has ever done and yeah. uh, it still sort of gives me goosebumps when i hear it when he's just <laughs> belting out those lyrics what is sacred in your life you know mm-hmm. what is holy and mm-hmm. just re-examining everything that you know you find important and and you spend your time on um on your in your day-to-day life and examining that it's really powerful song i think that that song and um saints are down are two songs that you know i've gone through when when this album came on i listened to it a lot um those two three years after that i haven't listened to it in probably i would say maybe three years or so um maybe longer put this album back on those two songs come up and it's total goose chills like just the performance his lyrics his vocal just the, the mood of, in the, the the way the guitars sound or the way they orchestrate everything it's just both of those songs are just I don't know it, it's amazing like going back and listening to this that you know those songs and, and quite, quite a few others are, are pretty slow or mid-tempo and for me that's Usually not a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's totally like work it, and they just find the right tempo, and there's always interesting stuff going on. And but yeah, they're they're still for me. I'm, <clears throat> that's that's cool to hear. But you know, we we both are sort of reacting to the same the same stuff on this because part sometimes I'm like maybe maybe I'm just a sap and it's just me. But no, I... there's some stuff on here that's really uh, tug that you're. Uh, it pulls all the right strings. I, I think my only knock on the record is that um, some of the later stuff at the end of the album, I don't. I, I like Saints Are Down, um, 
There are two songs that stick out to me that I don't really care for. One is Universal You, which I found out was co-written by the bass player at the time, who I don't even know who the bass player was. It, mm-hmm. ju- it seems disjointed between the verses and the choruses. Uh, the choruses are really heavy, mm-hmm. and the verses have like a clean guitar picking going on, and um, just I didn't love that track. And I'm not a really big fan of Emperor's New Horse. Other than that, I I love you know pretty much every song on this album. I was just gonna say uh, that the song that for me that. I could probably do without would be Be Free, which is funny because it's probably the most typical cult song on here. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds the most like it could end up on electric. But it's kind of mailed in, you know, it's just, it's, to me it sounds like they, like, they had just heard Honey Kravitz, Are You Gonna Go My Way, and are basically trying to, you know, write that. It's just not. I mean, the, the rest of the material in here is so good that that song could have been left off, and you know it wouldn't have been this for me. The the one track that I, I I mentioned to you before the show that I wanted to mention or that I wanted to bring up um, is one that's not on the album. It's on well, it's not on the original release of the album. It's on the re-release, which has bonus tracks, and it's also on, I believe, if you get any cult, if you get the pure cult compilation or if you get the uh, rare cult box set it's on there too it's called in the clouds and i definitely want to play it because i think it's an interesting bridge not only is it an interesting bridge it's one of my favorite cult songs of all time it is one of the best rock up-tempo rock songs i think they ever wrote um just in terms of like pure energy and fun that Mm -hmm. that song is but knowing that Bob Rock produced this record, and knowing that Bob Rock produced the album in 2001, Beyond Good and Evil, that song to me sounds like the bridge between those two albums. funny how different those albums sound i mean it's astonishing to me that that bob rock produced this album that we're we're reviewing it it doesn't sound anything like a bob rock record i mean it sounds 
fantastic. I love the production, but he doesn't have any of his signature stuff. There's hardly any reverb. No. If you think about Bob Rock, you know, you think of think Sonic Temple, think of uh, the Black Album by Metallica. Right. You know, super huge, tight, thick, you know, but yeah, reverb. This album not like that at all. It's super intimate. The drums sound fantastic. They sound like, you know, the best drum kit in a room. Um, buzzed out bass, kind of nasty sounding guitar. You know, the guitars aren't, you know, the stereotypical Marshall stack. I mean, there are <clears throat> all kinds of different guitar tones and variety of sounds. Quirky keyboard sounds. You know, drum loops layered in in a really tasteful way. The only record that I can actually say that this kind of sounds like is you're going to laugh at this. Octane um, Baby? No, no. In terms of the production and it being a Bob Rock record, is uh, okay. the Tragically Hip record that he produced that came out a couple years ago. Um, oh, okay. It's a big, it's their only like big rock record. Yeah, it's the only album I like of theirs. It's the only album I didn't you know like he produced that. Yeah, uh, he did that record, and it totally has the elements of this record. Huh. Uh, I, hadn't th- I hadn't thought of that. You mentioned the bass. I, I did make a note for Naturally High, which is mm-hmm. another, again, drug-referenced song. Um, the bass tone on that, great, great bass tone on yep. that song. You're a righteous child. Sometimes you drink too much Well, hey, that's okay Don't you know The truth is killing you Ain't it strange All the things in your mouth Hey, that's your It's funny that you mentioned Octune Baby because this is kind of their Octune Baby in a, in yeah, a reverse I mean, way. This is their response to that that album. I mean, I think that they would admit they would probably admit that. I mean, it's. I think that's um, probably an album that when that came out, they started to be able to make sense of like where they could fit in with what was going on uh, by looking at what U2 was doing which is probably a band that they they probably came up with a little bit um, early on in the 80s. 
Um, and it, I mean, it, it definitely shares some of the production and sound techniques that that album has. You know, it has that extra layer of percussion and drums sometimes mixed in that U2 does on an album. It has sort of the, the fucked out bass and the thick uh, layered guitars and, it, you know, sort of in, intimate sound, but still very, um, you know, kind of pop oriented. Um, but I, I think for sure that that album was a huge influence on them for doing this. Now, we're talking about how much we like this record and how much we think people should, you know, give it a shot. But this was a commercial disaster for the band. Yeah. Uh, it ended them. Yeah, it put the end to them. Yeah. So, what do you think that the idea of Ian Asbury and Billy Duffy writing a confessional alt-rock record was simply just inconceivable at the time, and that's why this record kind of came and went? Um, I think, well, Star, the, the song Star and um, Coming Down, Drug Tongue, they, they, they got some play. I remember Star was used for, uh, that have been the Basketball Diaries? Or, or movie, some movie like that. Yeah, it was used in the trailer or in the movie. Um, coming down was I remember that being on the radio at the time. You know, if they weren't getting along when they did ceremony, which you know is probably one of their weaker weaker albums, um, and then they put this out and it's sort of a, the landscape has changed, and I'm sure they're still not getting along great. Um, you know, it it probably was the kind of kind of thing where like, look, if this isn't huge, what the hell is the point? How to keep doing this if we if we hate each other and the music's not selling, kind of thing. Um. So, why didn't connect? I, I don't think any band that had existed in the in the glam who could have been possibly associated with the glam rock scene had any chance of of really being successful during this time. I mean, it was so, it was so biased against any band that had any association with that era that you had absolutely no chance of, of really breaking through. I think they got, because they had a major label behind them and still sort of had some credibility with some DJs that probably got at least a shot to have coming down played on the radio. But at, after that, there was really nobody out there, uh, you know, fighting for them. and and really wanting to probably associate themselves with any band that had anything to do with, you know, hair metal or being a rock or anything of the, the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I think uh, the only rock. band that really survived into the 90s from that hair glam metal scene um, was Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi kind of became more of just a straight-up rock band in, like, the Bruce Springsteen mold. Yep. And they never really had a big drop-off the same way that almost every other one of those bands had. Yeah, they were so huge that they were virtually untouchable, you know? And they, and they were smart enough that they made, like, some albums like Keep the Faith that were... A little bit more, you know, introspective, and yeah, they got a little bit more rootsy, and then they started their evolution to basically becoming, I guess, what they are now. It's like a pop country band, actually. <laughs> no, but 
they were so big that they were like, you know, untouchable. The cult was, I mean, they had a couple of hip singles or charting singles, but they weren't that big. You know, they were still basically going to go down with the ship. Right. But I think they uh, had a credibility that a lot of those bands didn't have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in hindsight now, it seems ridiculous. But at the time, it was like, I don't, you know, look, I love this album. And, um, you know, I went out and bought it right around the time it came out or if not the day it came out. Um, But it wasn't the kind of thing where I was running around like, you know, with my hippest friends talking about, hey, I got the new Call album. (laughs) Right. Like, it was sort of like I loved it and people who, you know, I knew that would appreciate it, I told about it, but it wasn't the kind of thing you'd be like, walk up to somebody who's like, hey, whatever's the coolest thing right now. And it would have been like, hey, do you hear the new Paul album? It's awesome. It's been like, well, why are you serious? It, it was not the most fashionable thing in the world. So, Well, 17 years after the fact, you can now stand on the rooftops and tell people that they need to go out and buy the Colts self-titled album that it is really a pretty awesome uh, you know, collection of songs and they missed it the first time around so they need to get it this time because they don't know what they uh, missed out on. Anything else? Any last words about this? Any last observations? This is one of those episodes where I wish we could have uh, actually listened to the album together the whole way through and just added commentary as it goes because there's just so much stuff um, that's worthy of noting. Like, even the, the songs I think both you and I have sort of listed as being maybe not being on the weaker side of the album, there's still moments in those songs worth pointing out. You know, a drum sound or right. a line that he sings or a lyric or a guitar riff or something, you know. Um, and Saints Are Down. There's this, in the middle of the song, it goes into this eerie, like, backwards vocal speaking thing which normally when songs do that kind of thing i'm like oh boy here we go but it's just done so well it just gets really dark and evil and then all of a sudden they like come out of it and just reprise the chorus again and he's just belting out the that that uh that line it's just again it's it's sort of like typically you know a song that long with a part in it like that you know i'm going to be tuning out but they just pull it off because they're just such such talented guys and um there's just so many al- moments like that in this album that it, it would be it'd be difficult to uh to capture them all without actually going back and listening to the whole thing and sort of pointing out but um you, you know the song gone alone if if nothing else just go listen to that song on itunes or something and absolutely if you you know if you're sort of vaguely familiar with the cult and you hear that song, it'll totally change your perspective on, on what this album's like, which it did me, because <laughs> it was funny. You were describing how different it is, and I remember getting this album, you know. I was a big fan of Sonic Temple and Ceremony and Electric, and I, and I get this, and I, I heard drugs. Uh, I think I heard Coming Down Drug Song on the radio. And I get the album, I put it in, and that comes on. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, what the hell is this? But in the best possible way. Like, right. I wasn't sure. Ter- at all by it. I think um, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but we've had Neil on the show, Neil Schmidt, uh, who was our producer on some of the Stepford albums, and he, I believe you played that song for him 
and he pretty much had like the same reaction. He was sort of like, yeah. what the hell? <laughs> Anybody who hears just that song pretty much goes, what the hell? Because yeah. it is so bizarre and so cool. And you're just, <laughs> you, you're like, this is not the band that did Firewoman. Right. This is not possible. And yet you hear that song and it's such a game changer. It is, it's such an, if basically you can tell if someone's open to, because that, that song doesn't even fit a genre. Like, it's a, I guess it's a rock song, but it's so weird. Um, it's almost like a, a lounge, like saloon kind of thing. You know, it's like, you can almost picture like him walking up to the piano and just being, <laughs> being rocked and just belting this song out like in a really kind of hostile, hostile way. It, yeah, it's really, it's really strange, but awesome. Yeah. I think what's what the shame is, you know, they don't play any of these songs, so ever, which is really just kind of sad because, especially a song like that. I mean, it, that would be so fun to see them play this song. Well, when there was a cult show on HDNet, the only song that I saw them play from this era was "In the Clouds." Oh, really? Yeah, they were playing. It was a tour after um, Beyond Good and Evil came out. You know, they played stuff off of Love and uh, Sonic Temple. They might have played, you know, uh, some stuff, and some stuff off Electric. And the, they didn't touch a single song off the this record, but they did play In the Clouds. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because it was it's not even really an album song. It's not something that most people are going to know. Yeah. So, But it fits in, you know, with all those songs so well. Who was the drummer on this album? The drummer was Scott Garrett, who had previously been in the band Dag and Nasty, and actually filled in on drums for uh, God Lives Underwater at the end of that band's existence. Wasn't his brother in the band or something? Or starting to piece some of this together, he was either he, he or his brother was in another band. I want to say his brother was actually in this version of the call too, but I don't know if they were in the studio version or in the. There might have been different live, you know, players. So he he is he's an excellent drummer. He's a huge part of why this album works. I mean, on that song "Gone," like you said, like the the drum, the drums on that are just fantastic. I mean, they sound great, and the performance is just really well crafted and well well done. And, the, and just overall, I mean, it sort of has, like, again, it has that sort of that YouTube vibe to it where everything's really tight. It just has, I don't want to say danceable, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like kind of gets you moving, but it's still intricate. Just sometimes really hard for people to do. Like, they've oversimplified to the point where it's boring, but he's, uh, he's a really good drummer. Yeah. I think that's. Which would probably make it hard to do some of these songs live now because I don't know if the guy they have now is be able to play them or pull it off. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a limited uh, number of people who can actually play this stuff. So it, it sounds simple until you actually break it down and then you realize a lot of the stuff is not simple. Mm-hmm. It has great feel, which is hard to replicate. Yeah. So, alright, that's us tackling uh, one of the biggest bands we're going to ever cover probably uh, in this podcast. The Colts self-titled album 
Jay, thanks for joining me once again. And we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.